0: Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Please take a second to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode, in honor of the 72nd Annual DGA Awards, we're bringing back our annual series of episodes devoted to our popular Meet the Nominees theatrical feature film symposium. Now in its 29th year, The event is a roundtable discussion with the directors nominated for the Guild's Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film. This year's nominees include Bong Joon-ho, the director of Parasite, Sam Mendes, the director of 1917, Martin Scorsese, the director of The Irishman, Quentin Tarantino, the director of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Taika Waititi, the director of Jojo Rabbit. These talented directors were gathered on January 25th at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles with Mr. Scorsese joining via video from New York, and director Bong accompanied by his translator, Sharon Choi, to discuss the craft of directing and the making of their films with moderator Jeremy Kagan. So please enjoy part two of our Meet the Nominees special, and listen to the five nominees share their tips on dealing with anxiety, how they tackle pre-production issues, and the language they use to adjust an actor's performance. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation.
1: Um when you get anxious, when you know that oh, I don't know what's gonna what do you do? What do you do to calm yourself when you get anxious in the process? Me? Yeah, you first. <laughs> you first. Um
2: <laughs> no, these days it's funny, but it's um you know, I'm getting to a quiet place and, and sometimes even meditating. Just, yeah, you know, just going with it. First, expressing my anxiety to whoever listen. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever's walking up the street. Okay, listen, I had <laughs>
3: all,
2: all right, I just wanted you know, a pressure pin. I go back and forth, back and, forth, and finally it's you. And you just go in, take a few moments and um, used to be years ago, play a lot of music. But that uh has changed somewhat. The music is still played in my developing of the film and sometimes on set, but in the uh, trailer and stuff like that and no it's quiet.
1: Bong how about for you? When you get anxious what do you do? How do you calm yourself?
4: I eat sugar
3: thing. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> So, I always have a bunch of chocolate and candy around the monitor at all times. <laughs> <laughs> good.
5: That's good. <laughs> it, it, it works? Yeah. Uh, could you
1: go,
4: uh, yes, and also I always go back to my storyboard. The reason why I draw my own storyboards is because I'm anxious. There are so many great directors who don't use storyboards. Um, but for me, I draw every shot myself. And my crew members are also great in uh, following my storyboards. So.
3: That's my process.
4: So basically I take out my anxiety from my heart and study it. It will happen this way. <웃음>
1: <웃음> In this experience on this movie, was there one or two major things that worried you? I mean, just this really does
3: worry me about this particular film. 음,
4: I was very worried about the flood sequence. Because we had to spend a long time in the water shooting that sequence, and water is always very difficult to deal with. I heard that Spielberg, after he shot Jaws, he was like, I will never shoot water ever again.
6: <laughs> uh,
4: of course, it wasn't as ex- extensive with Parasite, but we prepared a lot for that sequence, and that's why we built the entire poor neighborhood inside a water tank. Um, and when we started building houses in these, this water tank, all the set empo- all the employees at that water tank found it very bizarre because you Usually they shoot people swimming there or ship sequences, and we were building houses. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How about for you, Quentin? What do you do with your anxiety and worries? Well, the, uh, the only thing that really... Um,
6: there I mean, they're, can they're be all, uh, a weird situation that happens versus this scene versus another scene during the course of a shoot, but... Um, um, the only scenes that actually really make me anxious are like the big cinematic set pieces. I mean, if 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 if, if we've done our job and I'm happy with the way the scene is written, if it's just a scene between two or three actors sitting there talking to each other, I'm not anxious about that. I figure I've got good actors where I like the scene, so it's all going to be good. It's gonna, actually, it's going to be what it's supposed to be. Um, but the big cinematic set pieces or the action scenes or something like that. That's where, that's where I get a little nervous because I want it to be fucking great. I want it to be as good as anybody's ever done it before. And uh, I want it to go in the annals of great action scenes of all time um, and for all time. <laughs> and if I, And I know whether or not I'll have pulled that off or not. And even if I can fool the audience, I'll know whether or not nah, it wasn't as good as blah blah blah, or it was yeah, you know, it, it's okay, it's good, you know, but it's not one of the best ever. And uh, and I'm you know nervous that this is where I discover the limits of my talent. <laughs> and um, and but I actually think that's kind of what I'm we're trying to I'm trying to do is is you know. Your talent has a ceiling, and I keep wanting to find where the ceiling is. I'm, I'm risking hitting my head on the roof, and uh, so that's that's the stuff that I'm always fucking nervous about. So it's like you know, so like in you know, so in a movie like this, you know, the two days leading up to doing the big fight at the end, which I'm changing, <laughs> uh, uh, the uh, the Spawn rant sequence, uh, or uh, the Bruce Lee fight. You know, those are the scenes. Everything else was easy. All right. You know, uh, I mean, more or less. There's there's logistical stuff. But uh, that's the only one where it's like, you know, it's it's a calliope of cinema. It all has to work together. And uh, and I'm not using second unit. And we're not going to go back. It's like if whatever decisions we make on those four days or five days, that's that's it. And uh, yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, so those are my anxieties. And like literally the only uh, thing out of it is just get started. Just get started. You show up on the day and you're like nervous and you're like a little irritable and uh, been thinking about it all the night before and everything. Just get it going, get your, get your shot list going, get shot one, get shot two, get shot three, and now you're in it. And now you don't have time to be, you have anxiety about it anymore. You might have anxiety about trying to pull off a shot inside of there. But literally once, I, once I'm on to shot three, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in it. But. But starting that climb up the Himalayans can, can be a little tough.
1: Thank you,
3: Thank you. Tycho. what about um, you? Well, uh, and, uh, I mean, the, whole, the entire thing makes me very nervous and, um, <laughs> and anxious. And uh, I don't, like, I mean, it's a, it's a myriad of things still pile up. Uh, I have a condition. I haven't asked anyone about it. I've self-diagnosed it. But I think that uh, when I get too stressed out, and I really hate this about me, but I fall asleep. A lot. I, I, can't, I can't stay awake. And so um, I'm barely awake right now. So intimidating being in this room. But, um, but I do, I feel like, I get, and so there's now become like a, a collection of photographs of me asleep on sets. From all of my films and TV, like anything I've done, I will sneak off into a corner and just, and people will find me curled up on a ball asleep like a cat who's trying to die. And, um, <laughs> And, and so that's, I guess that's how I deal with it. But, um, but it can be so many things that set me off. I mean, actors first, I mean, you've got an idea of what you want to do. And the thing that really wigs me out is like, this would be like six... Actors, grown-up actors, are the worst. You know, they come in and they've got all their ideas about, yeah, and, Oh, I thought my character was molested when, like, you know, and I want to put that in here. Oh, I think my character should do the scene up in that tree over there. And uh, so you spend most of your day convincing them not to be in the tree and somehow kind of kick, getting them back to your original idea that you were trying to do uh, without being an asshole. And uh, it's a but the end of the year and then part of it's like it's time it's like, and then also and the other thing is trying to get everyone to just stay with you and believe in you because like it can be especially for me because I've written most of my own things and this film in particular I felt was like a big career ender and uh, <laughs> I thought yep. I've had a good run <laughs> I'll give this one a go and see how this could work um, and especially not me being in it and playing that that idiot in that in the film, and there's just something about just trying to get the crew to follow you with that. It's, you feel very... It's, uh, it's very hard to keep everyone motivated and say, like, hey, this is my cool idea. I really think it's going to work. Please believe in this. And then it all came... Well, I mean, the worst experience I had on that film was I um, actually had... Uh, I was uh, seen on the river when Scarlet and Roman were having their heart-to-heart about love, and we were shooting it, most of it from across the river. And, um, and I had to keep running across to go and, like, yeah. check for, for, <laughs> with the crew and, like, make sure the framing things right because we didn't have cables to go across the river and there's no, the radios weren't working. And uh, I was, yeah, I guess it's a big admission, I was dressed mm-hmm. as Hitler and I started screaming across the river at the crew. <laughs> not proud of it. <laughs> and I'll take that with me to my grave. How embarrassed I was! But it was so like that was the moment I thought this is never going to work. And killed <laughs> up in a ball and went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> it may be a good methodology for all of us to learn. Sam,
1: what do you do when you're getting anxious?
5: Well, I mean, my, I, I thought my movie was a high wire act, but at least I wasn't dressed as fucking Hitler trying to make it. <laughs> The more I think about it, the worse it seems. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, I've done a very good job of hiding my inner Hitler all these years. Um, yeah, I think I'm a little bit like Marty. I, 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 um, I find that I have to be quiet now. Uh, my mum's getting older. But I think I have two ways of switching off. One, well, actually three. Chocolate, like Bong, quiet, uh, uh, like Marty, and watching sport. And, and I find that if I if I'd sit in the silence or watch sport for long enough in the evening, if there's a little man who pops up onto my shoulder going, you f the scene today. It's not right. He will appear. At some point in the evening, he will, he will pop up and I, he will interrupt my sleep. And by the next day, I will, I will know that I have to do something about it. And I've learned that that, that little person, he, he makes a fairly regular appearance early on in the shoot. Uh, he, he, um, yeah, he's annoyingly present. I mean, it goes way back to my first movie, to American Beauty, when that first day he was on my shoulder saying that wasn't right. <coughs> and that's, it, I reshot the first two days of, of that movie, and, and I, 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 I sort of wait for him a little bit. So now I know he, he might turn up. So that, God, I sound completely insane, don't I? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Maybe I should be lying on the couch. Um, anyway, so yeah, that, that's, uh, but I, I do have to f- get into some negative space and peace and quiet in order to work out what I think. I mean, think that's, that's really why. I mean,
3: you're constantly fighting against this idea. Well, I am that, you know, someone's eventually going to find out <laughs> that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and like, well, that's so why I'm like, I'm like oh, When is he going to realize? Yeah, it's it's like, a kind like, of a I'm, syndrome I'm, I'm, that I'm just learning about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, talk about, for all of you, in, in the pre-production process, I'd like you to talk about sort of working with your assistant director um, in terms of sort of taking on all of the problems that are g- Possibly going to be your challenges. On this particular one, I know you had at least six months in which that was your pre-production. There may be been more, more before that. But talk about that process for in this particular film. Um,
5: it was it was really really enjoyable. That's the first thing to say because we were trying to solve the same problem all at the same time. I mean, we didn't have particularly, you know. It sounds ridiculous, like we've had, we had the actors rehearsing for six months. Well, We didn't rehearse just with them for six months. They were simply part of what we all know is a, a decent, lengthy pre-production period. And the fact that actors are not normally part of that um, uh, never really struck me until so strongly as with this movie, because we couldn't do anything until they started speaking, because everything we did was based around rhythm and, and the length of time it would take to make the journey. So we couldn't start digging a trench until we'd walked the scene on an empty field. So we started literally with an empty field with two actors with their scripts. Um, and we marked out the trench sides with poles. And, and every time we got to a scene or a left fork or a right fork, we marked it with a different color pole and another scene and another scene. I had two of the younger actors playing all the other roles. So there were four actors for six months and that goes so you know it wasn't until we'd walked out the trenches that we started digging them we dug over a mile of trenches and it it worked in layers one after the other and that went for no man's land and fields and farmhouses and woods and our orchards. We couldn't start anything until we had walked it with the actors.
1: And when you were walking with the actors, because there's times when they're silent, there's times because yeah. they're not all talking and then arriving. No. How did you all work that out so that you finally said, okay, we're going to start here, here, and then we turn
5: left? That was just instinct. That, that comes from, you see, as a theater director, I am not unused to trying to establish rhythm and tempo of an evening without cutting. I am used to handling silence as well as dialogue. And to try to reach for an understanding of how long that tension can be retained without speech. And and that's what I was trying to do all the time with this movie. For me, the most difficult scenes are people, you know, uh, you talk about the bigger uh, set pieces, uh, actually, the most difficult scenes by far were the scenes in which they were just walking and not speaking. Uh, f- the first scene of the movie gave me the, 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 the most sleepless nights because I wanted to feel it's the only time in the movie <clears throat> before they get given their mission, effectively, that they just I just wanted them to be, uh, to talk about things that they might talk about, um, to not talk when they didn't feel like talking, uh, to read a letter, to to sort of idly talk about what's in the letter, maybe what's for supper, you know, and, and through the cracks of that little conversation, gradually reveal the details of who they were and, and how long they'd been there and the differences between the two men. But I didn't want it to be expositional. I didn't want it to be on the nose. So those were the scenes that, that you know, it took real courage for me to say to Dean, who was playing Blake at the beginning, okay, you got a letter, just read the letter. And, he, and he, he kept saying, but it's taking too long. Isn't it taking too long? I said, no, just take the time it takes to actually read the letter, put it in, fold it up, put it back in your pocket, and say what's in the letter. And those are the things that took the courage for me. Um, you know, the, the, what, what then happened was that watching them and being with them all that time, I was able to uh, very gently direct them. Uh, I, first of all, I watched them a lot, watched the way they were with each other, the way they were physically. They became friends off-camera, which was very helpful to me, and I was able to just let them let it cook a little bit rather than Come at them with you know um, specific directions early um, And also watch the way that they f- they were naturally in the land in the landscape and the way they moved and um, And of course we had the operator there with us the whole time um, Some often different operators different rigs and Roger Deakins and we were a little small unit just walking through Fields, you know, and then a, a gradually it, it emerged out of that. And if you think about this, the sequence that you showed at the beginning here, I, that did start with me and a script running across an empty back lot at Shepperton, and saying, I think he's going to throw himself down here. Um, here is where I want him to look up. Here is where I want the flares to be. Uh, you know, here is where I want him to stop in the corner. I want him to go through this little store here. So this is where we... And planting flags and just walking it myself. That process started actually when I, when I was doing Skyfall and I wanted Javier Bardem's first speech to be one long take and, and no cuts. I wanted him to approach the camera very slowly. So I, and I started just reading the speech, me and my script supervisor, trying to judge the length of time and the speed at which he'd be walking. And then we constructed the set around the speech and, and, it, and it occurred to me actually what you have to do is you have to construct the environments but only when you know the rhythm of the dialogue because obviously if you, you you know you have a dialogue that's taking place in an orchard and you know they run out of things to talk about you've got 30 seconds of dead time and they're just walking or the other way around you know they've got too much to talk about and they, they stop the orchard stops before they stop so it, everything had to be constructed Turning left, Around turning, turning left and turning right, which becomes a lot of the sort of
1: the maze. Did you go through a process and working out a, a design of that before you then actually were on these fields and walking it? Um,
5: yeah, if you study the, 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 the way the trenches were built, I won't bore you with it now, but there are, you know, there are four lines. There's the rear trench, third line, second line, front line. And then there's the comms trenches that link each trench. One, they're one-way one way go, streets. Some go up, some go down. They're built crenelated. They've got zigzags in them because if an enemy drops into them and opens fire, you know, if it's straight, then they can wipe out a 1,000 men like that. So they have to build them in zigzags. Mm. And when you go into them yourself, you, you're in this maze, and you very quickly, particularly if the sun's in, you lose your sense of direction. You don't know where you are. So that feeling and the, and the way in which each trench had a different atmosphere you know, some go through railway cottages. Some are a little bit more organised. And when you get to the front line, you feel this dead, deadness of people waiting, just waiting. And also, the the pounding it's taken for three years. This thing, and so it's been destroyed and rebuilt, destroyed and rebuilt. And so you have to do that with the production design. You have to construct these layers of this sort of history of it, and this sense of men just waiting, sleeping, eating, shitting, dying, all in the same space. The fucking smell of it. The awful. Just the just the, the the dead and we had one photograph pinned on the wall roger deakins and i it was a, and it was the framing it was everything about it. it just seemed to be our movie we didn't have a lot of examples of other movies that have that have been in the same world um other than the obvious ones uh Pals of glory, glory. etc but you know the, the way in which the movie moved and and spoke was different from many of those so we had this we, we went back to source photographs and One of them, it was just a photograph of three guys, they were having breakfast, they were sitting on the parapet of a trench, and about 20 feet away was a pile of bodies waiting to be buried. And it was just the normality of it. It was the fact that there was nothing, they were just going to have their breakfast and then bury their friends. And it it, it just was everything that movie was trying to be, that the two things could coexist in the same frame, that the eye had time to go from one to the other, that you were able to the 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 framing of it and also the lens. I mean, we, we didn't want it to be very um, long lens point of view. We didn't want it to be very subjective, like a movie like Son of Saul, which I thought was a magnificent film, but very very subjective. Everything dropping out of focus beyond our hero. Nor did we want it to be super wide. You know, we didn't want it to be like uh, you know uh, The Revenant, for example, which I loved, but very, very wide lenses. It's it's really shot on a very, very ordinary, <laughs> it's on a forty, on a forty millimeter lens. That's that's what it is. The whole movie. It, fi- it has a certain amount of draw. But we're, we're trying to find a way of not dressing it up.
1: And figuring out in pre-production how long a take would be, how you would uh, hand off cameras to cameras. Can you talk a little bit about that in pre-production?
5: Well, one of the things Roger Deakins and I talked about a lot was, let's talk about why um, before we talk about how. So we we just talked about what we wanted the camera to do and why emotionally. At what point do we want it to be intimate? At what point do we want to see the geography, understand the nature of their journey? At What point do we want the image to see them tiny in a giant epic landscape? At what point do we want to see what they see but not them? And and sometimes we want to see them and not what they see. It was a way of trying to use the usual tools of film grammar without cutting, but not ever stinting on what we would normally want from a movie at that point. You know, I prefer to talk, talk about it as a movie with no cuts rather than a one-shot movie. To me, we were trying all the time to develop this language, this dance between the camera, the actors, and the landscape, all three of which were moving all the time. And and you know, I, I don't know what the other guys would say, but to me, you know, it doesn't matter how much you plan. At the end of the day, it's just there's an instinct that kicks in. This is what I think it should be, and it, it's not always logical. It's not always rational, and there aren't necessarily rules. It's just this is what I feel like it is, and so it's just having the time with me and Roger just to talk about it. We did storyboard it. We often storyboarded it over and over again until we got the right version, like a sequence where he crosses the canal at one point across a broken bridge. We storyboarded that six times until we found the right way to tell the story because I was very determined that the movie was always pushing forward in this sort of threatening way. And I couldn't find a way to get him to, if you imagine, he had to look across the distance, he had to jump, and then he had to, so he had to look over the edge, then he had to go back, take a run up and jump. And I didn't like that because it meant the camera was going forward, back and forward again. And I felt we were going back over our steps. And that really bugged me. And I kept trying to find a way where he could, he, we could see his thought process as to how he was gonna get across without the camera stopping moving forward. So there was this threat, this sense that, that you were being pulled through the movie rather than just being presented with images. That you were being, you were being forced to walk he, like he was. And that was a kind of gut instinct. So a lot of the time we were just talking about it until we found the right solution. And as I said earlier, when we did, it was like, yeah, that's it, and we didn't really have to talk about it again. And and very very few of the shots changed their fundamental nature when we were shooting. I mean, normally I would go on set and, and a little bit like what Quentin described, you know, with his last scene. You know, you make changes all the time, you know, uh, because you see it, and someone has a better idea than you, or you 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 see the scene differently. But suddenly you're on set, and there's a shot over there that's much more interesting, or what you planned somehow disappoints you or whatever it is. But in this one, we'd been through that process. We'd, we'd co- constructed this dance and then it was just adding layers. So we, we rarely changed it. Got it, thank you.
1: In, in pre-production for you, Taika, obviously finding the city has gotta have been one of the major issues, but what were some of, of the challenges for you in pre-production besides putting your crew and cast, but you know, which one would come up for you?
3: Uh, yeah, the, 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 the casting was a big thing. Uh, Finding kids, uh, finding enough children, and also where to shoot with the kids. Stoke originally, we were going to shoot in uh, Germany, but uh, right. they've really um, sorted out their human rights uh, issues. And you can only shoot with a kid in Germany for three hours. Uh, so yeah, I know. And so uh, we thought, well, we'll go out to the Eastern Bloc countries because you know, be way easier. Um, <laughs> Only five hours out there so but so but we, we ended up in Prague because it had still had the architecture and everything but incidentally new zealand ten hours <laughs> way better uh we're really working down there the um, <laughs> but in, uh but prague had and 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 the outlying uh, areas still all the architecture was still intact because it hadn't been bombed and uh so we yeah we decided to go to go there and it just yeah various reasons made more sense then also just i guess the the period vehicles and everything are becoming more scarce and because it wasn't a massive budget we were, ha- we were having to kind of trade things off so like if we wanted a certain amount of extras uh that would be like i'd have to maybe i'd say like oh i'd really like more people in the town square and i said well you have to swap a car for 10 people and uh, and vice versa like if i wanted more more vehicles i could get rid of those was always, Figuring out throughout the city, like how, where we could like spend the money and get what we wanted, um, and then the and then yeah, the rest of it. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Pre-production, in production we just and I did a lot of rehearsals with the kids.
1: In creating the destroyed city, um, can you talk about in pre-production how that
3: evolved? Uh, it was like a, some shots. It's like a little bit of, uh, sort of set extension and CG stuff, but. Uh, there are some, uh, some places out, outside of Prague where we got to shoot, which were sort of demolished, like factories and things like that, which uh, I think is sort of a, a few people have gone there before. But it's, it was great. It was good there.
1: And turning into winter, when you had that sequence there, again, I'm wondering, as you were thinking of this before
3: I actually shooting. Yeah, we went back in winter, uh, did some, some pickups. I usually uh, try and build pickups into my, uh, into my schedules because I always b- know I'm going to go back to something.
1: Uh, is storyboarding part of your process for this, um, or was it, and if not, how do you communicate? There's various
3: things. If it's a dialogue scene, or it's, yeah, I, I don't bother, but if it's uh, something that feels a bit more complicated or something where I know, you know I can want the camera to end up in a certain place, then I'll do that, but mainly for myself. So there,
1: there are lots of, sort of, in terms of, again, pre-production stuff, like, the props and, in particular, all of the signages, all the posters, I'm interested in how those evolved. Obviously, you had to have them before you them on set. Where do they come from?
3: Well, they're all, uh, uh, I mean, we did a lot of research, and they're all very authentic stuff. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, that was a sort of the uncomfortable thing as well, is putting all that stuff back up in these places. Like The main square where uh, we have the gallows and stuff is a, a square where Hitler did one of his rallies and stuff. And so we put these... Big banners up, and uh, you really get the feeling people are off oh, their back. And uh, it, took, it was a real, like it wasn't, because it's already like the sort of. And we were shot in Baronov Studios, which was built by the Nazis for their propaganda films. And uh, it's even that has this sort of like strange heavy residue around it, hanging over it. So you're in there in these stages where they, you know, where they shot all these these films. And outside of uh, Babelsberg, uh, Prague is probably the next big place to go and shoot these films, and so at any given point, walking down the hallways of, of the studios, you'd see these other Nazi soldiers walking towards you, and, you know, are those our Nazis? <laughs> no. There's someone else's Nazis, because like, there's different productions going on, and you don't know who's, you know, where all where the soldiers belong to which production and stuff, and so Sarah so was like looking at it, Oh, they've got a cannon. Uh, Where'd they get that cannon from? Let me
6: ask a question because I've shot at Babblesburg.
3: Who, who had Garibald's office? Oh, I don't know. I hope it wasn't
6: me. No, yeah, no, Garibald, Garibald, Yeah, Garbo's office. He, uh, um, our production manager, had Gerbo's office.
1: In designing the the uh, the home where they live, um, which I think has two floors besides the hidden yeah. space, um, talk about how that evolved in pre-production before you actually you know obviously built it.
3: Answer they <laughs> uh, No, the uh, well, we yeah, we we built the the interior, the entire interior of the uh, of the the house, and there was Robinson who I've worked with for for years, and and uh, yeah, we just uh, we it, every room was very different, and the whole palette of the film was very colourful. So we that was a real decision, just from looking at a lot of footage and, and doing some research. <coughs> it was a very colourful time, and there was like a lot of like the architecture was very colourful, the fashion was very. Ford at the time in Germany and like they were wearing a lot of the textiles that they took from other places and so they were, you know, it was a, I mean for them it was a party that just wouldn't stop um, and then, and so when we first got there we asked like wardrobe and stuff, can we see the stuff you've got from your archives <coughs> and they would wheel in all these big racks of, uh, of clothes but everything was brown and grey and, uh, and so in, and a lot of the builders were very surprised to have to like use like bright colours in the you know, uh, uh, the interior of the house and everything, because they're so used to, you know, like very desaturated and, and gloomy sets and gloomy uh, wardrobe, which I get it's a good reason for that. But uh, but for us, we wanted it to just feel a, a little brighter, not because it was, there were jokes in the film, uh, just because it's it's uh, it was authentic and, it, and actually, and also like the idea that you know that. Because, I mean, there's a great book you should read called Blitzed, which is about the drug industry in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And uh, basically the entire country was high on meth for the entire time and partying, and when they knew that the Russians were coming and ever in the war was, and that it was all over for them, they went even crazier and partying oh, harder, uh, just knowing that, They were going to look glamorous and go out in style and off their faces.
1: By the way, the headboard of the the bed in the house is a pretty remarkable headboard. I assume that someone, your production designer props, people said, do you like this? Do you want this? Do you remember this particular moment? Because Uh, it it stands out.
3: Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. I do remember that. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. Uh, No, I mean, all that stuff, I mean, I was like... So some of it's creepy because, like, yeah, you know, they like they offer up things with like vintage, you know, like the knives and like things and like the actual kits, the backpacks and all this, the the kits that they would take to these camps and, you know, part of me wanted to burn it and the other part of me was were like, we need these and like, so it sort, of, it sort of felt conflicted. But also a lot of those props and things that are beautifully made things and the furniture and stuff is incredible and. Uh, and it's a beautiful craftsmanship there as well. Like the builders were like, the floors were like, most of the things in the house were built in the old style as well. Right. And, uh yeah, it was, Marty, and I, then we tore it down.
1: I'm going to jump over. I want to hear pre-production <laughs> issues, but Marty, I'm not sure about timing here. If you have to a- time to answer uh, the question about um, your, I mean, there's so many locations, but your pre-production issues, if you've got time, I know there's something else going on for you, but. Um, it, yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, but uh, I, I'm listening. I,
2: you know, it's extraordinary uh, uh, what I'm hearing. Of course, I, I, the way I always approach it is, um, I find that um, again, the way Long was talking about the insecurities or anxieties, I play it, I, I draw it all out, uh, and uh, usually, um, whether they're actual drawings or notation drawings, smaller drawings. Including, in many cases, editing patterns, um, movement in frame, camera movement within the frame, forward, back, whatever. Um, in a hotel, usually, or in a place where I could be quiet for like eight or nine days. And just do with music and uh, uh, deal with it as best I can. Uh, lay it all out completely. Because it's going to change. You know, but I have, it, not, not all the time, by the way. But when it does change, at least I go back to my original uh, even in some cases, uh, certain pencils I use, the original drawings and the, the impact, I should say, the impression of the actual pencil, not a Xerox of it. I remember the camera moved then, and that's or the, the impulse for that. This picture is different because I had to do that, but the style, uh, what I wanted to do was have, um, the film had to be anonymous. There had to be an anonymity to the look of the picture, yet Within the frame, there had to be the emotional impact. Um, and therefore, uh, it was what not to do, what to take away, and ultimately when to do the last little brushstroke in a shot or a performance, so to speak, um, and and finding for many different reasons, including the uh, CGI issues with the uh, six lenses and that sort of thing, finding eliminating even more so than usual on set, not necessarily taking extra shots that I know, because it was so many locations that I know that in the editing, I might want to try not try and say, I don't need it. I simply don't need it. Um, A lot of that happened when I was doing silence too, in Taiwan. Um, And so uh, it's a matter of, it was a matter really of um, having the strongest emotional impact Within something that looks, I don't, you know, car going by, uh, shot of a restaurant, uh, person sitting at a table. Uh, We didn't try to emphasize anything, really. Yes, there's some camera movements and things like that, but bottom line was anonymity and at the same time, emotional and psychological power. And so this all had to be played out. By myself, basically, in a room and then ultimately checking out the locations. And sometimes it's fun. I didn't do anything on certain scenes. I get there and I say, "Okay, we move from here to here, you know. Uh, But by that point, I had had the uh, I knew where the impulse was coming from. I knew what what my what my foundation was for the look of the picture. And who knows I could make another maybe a similar thing. I don't know. But it's simplifying it.
1: Marty, did you build anything on on this piece, or what did you build? Or is almost all of it practical?
2: No, no, we built the house for the interior of the house. Um, uh, that uh, um, Frank and his uh, second wife and their uh, his first wife and their kids uh, in the kitchen. Um, that's an example. When he comes back home and he discovers that his daughter has been uh, um, pushed by the grocer, <laughs> I saw him come in the door. <laughs> little girl is sitting in that doorway. He goes by, he says, off off camera character, he says, what's the matter with her and his wife answers. And as he as she answers, we carry him over to his wife, we then take him back to his daughter. And then we let him take the daughter out the door. One shot. That was done there. You know, I had a feeling of freedom that way. And I know those rooms, I grew up in some of those places like that. So I know what it's like going from one. (coughs) See, um, the, uh, the, the house that uh, Jimmy Hoffa supposedly was shot in was the interior was was a, uh, a set. Um, at that point, however, um, I designed it in such a way that it was about the quietness of the frames, <coughs> particularly when De, when De Niro enters the, this place, he, you see a character you've never seen before in the movie cutting up a carpet, and the guy looks at him and he says uh, "Hi, Frank," and he says, "Hi, Sally." And the kid says, uh, uh, Sally says, Chucky's late. Who's Chucky, Sally, hi Frank, who are these people? To give the impression and to keep in the audience's mind that this could all be a setup to kill Frank, you see. Um, Frank then looks up at the uh, first uh, floor landing and he looks inside to his right. There's nobody in that room, that's dangerous. But put the camera in the other room De Niro walks across and through the room. As he comes forward to its camera, he notices two other people in the kitchen. And then we just pan him over. He checks out the kitchen and we pan him back. Um, I was tempted to take a close up of that. And when that happened, the nature of the body language, the sense of uh, danger, um, the feeling of the creaking of the floor of the house, even though it was a set, uh, it, this I knew was the essence of the film, you see. Um, taking it further, when he does shoot uh, Jimmy in this film, uh, what I did was um, after the uh, after Jimmy gets shot, I pull the walls away and we pull back to a proscenium and obviously a set. I don't think many people notice that, but it's obviously a set. And I was asked, aren't people gonna tell us that so it's okay? Don't. There's something psychologically that happens when his best friend, is there on the ground, Whom he's killed. Uh, he's laid out on the ground. He puts the gun on him, straightens his shirt, he leaves, and we stay on the body. And the body is like a tableau, uh, a presentation, a sacrifice, you know, to this life. Um, uh, it, it, hits, it actually goes back to this incredible impression that I had for this movie called Autumn Leaves. And Robert uh, Aldrich directed a Joan Crawford and Cliff Robertson. I think his first film. Uh, he, he's a pathological liar, and I'd seen him as twelve years old or whatever. And uh, he's obviously uh, has a serious mental problem. She's in love with him. He's much younger. Um, there's a scene at night uh, when he's uh, they're in their beds, and um, uh, he's having all kinds of emotional problems. And there's a scene at night that she's sleeping and she hears him crying, and she turns around and looks. And she sees him by the wall. He's standing up and he's crying. Then the camera cuts and it's as if it's a glass wall and you're looking at him and his hands are up like this. And she comes up and uh, uh, comforts him, tries to comfort him. Now, there's nothing like that in the movie. Uh, there's only, that's only one shot. And somehow that uh, bold move uh, was so disorienting you really get the impression of a person who has lost their ability to cope their ability to discern reality from from fantasy you really get that and I was about eleven or twelve and I've never forgotten over that that one cut and that one image um and so for me it was that kind of thing uh to uh find the restraint and um, uh, find the the uh uh the emotional power within a frame that had to feel anonymous
1: were there any Another question here, were there any scenes or moments in performance, because I, I sort of asked you to all think about this for uh, um, before we started here, There, where you needed to readjust the performance of one of your actors, and how did you do that? And it may not be true here, but maybe there was one or two, and we're, just as directors to directors, what you say or do when you want to change a performance were there any moments that stand out for you here where that happened? And I, think how you handled- I, think, no, I think in this
2: picture we had, we had uh, uh, by the time we were able to get the financing for the film, the people involved were already in those parts in a sense. And they know each other for years, too. I never worked with Al Pacino before, but I uh, always wanted to. Uh, Bob and Al, what you see in the film, they draw on their 40-year relationship as friends and as actors. You know, it's there. Uh, Pesci, we you know, for many years, sometimes it was a matter of um, uh, getting the right kind of insinuation without it being insinuating with uh, Joe's uh, dialogue um, and how to make an impression, uh, how to say I, you're doing this but without saying you're doing this. For example, when he tells this guy towards the end of the film, he says he starts a scene this scene. This was not in the script. It was, it was something that I said, let me think about it further. Let me think about it further. He sets up, uh, he, he he tells this uh, young guy to go and kill somebody in uh, Northern California. Um, and There were all kinds of problems in the script. You have to understand that this guy stole jewels from him. He's a jeweler, back and forth. Back. I tried all these different things. And finally, I said, let's just stop the movie and have Tashi sitting there looking forward towards camera saying... There's a pork store in Northern California. Are you aware of this place of near Walnut Creek? And you see this guy you never saw before. He goes, "Uh huh." I'm looking for a favor, not 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 for me, for a friend. And we'd like to get him down to Australia. See if you can help him. And ultimately, that undoes his uh, that undoes his his situation. He gets arrested for that. But um, I found that uh, to to uh, position Joe in such a way to have the quiet and the patients didn't have to yell, didn't have to, uh, threaten. He's talking about a pork store in Northern California, in Walnut Creek. What has this got to do with anything? You know, those were the, those were the issues I, uh, as, as the picture was being shot that I found, uh, frightening to find new ways to do it. And, or I should say refreshing ways to do it or unexpected ways to do it. Um, and, or, uh, to uh, keep the dramatic impact or De Niro sitting in his car in the car wash. I had all these shots planned for the car wash. Uh, I took one shot of him and he's going through and it's kind of in slow motion. And uh, I said, that's the shot. Let's go home.
1: (laughs) When when, when Joe Pesci, um, when De Niro gets in the car after having killed Hoffa, there's a shot. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. There's a shot over Pesci, and De Niro's got in the car. He says nothing. And Pesci's moment of obviously knowing what's happened. I'm wondering, did you say anything to him? Did you? This is a very good point because in the script, it had uh,
2: something that Steve and I said, leave it in, don't worry about it. it said uh, The line was something like, "How to uh, have a good trip. I said, he would never say that. I said, leave it in, leave it in. Let me hear what Joe has to say and see what Bob has to say. Have a good trip, really? After what you've, what you've instructed this man who's so close to you to do, I just don't see anything. And we were sitting there. I remember it was a very hot day, and it was on this tarmac, and uh, we were talking. And I said, I just don't want to be, are you sure? Maybe you could say this. Maybe he could say that. I don't know. Just, I mean, really, there's nothing you can say. Um, and at some point, I don't know if it was Joe or Bob or me, somehow the thing about give me a glass has happened give me your sunglasses. And then we looked at it, he said, yeah, that's it. And then he said, hey, when he gets back, I forget who said this, when he gets back, I get back the glasses I Said, great. <laughs> that's it. And so it became something like we all knew it had to happen. There had to be some kind of uh, recognition of what was happening and what had been done, but it's by gesture rather than uh, a line like "Hey, did everything go okay? Did everything go okay?" You don't say that.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you, um, thank you. We, uh, um, I don't know what your timing is, Marty, but I'm going to go off to. Are, are you still I, with us? I, I do have to get back <laughs> to the house. I got it. Um, All right. Uh, We're going to thank you thanks. very much for the time. I, you guys are up here for a little longer. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Marty, thank you so much.
2: You guys and uh, uh, Bong, I've met a number of times. Quentin, we know him. Sam. Thank you for everything you've said about me. Uh, it's just extraordinary and so moving, and uh, never forget it. Uh, and and uh, I mean, maybe we'll meet in a couple of weeks. I dare
3: you.
6: Look <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Thanks <laughs> Marty. <laughs>
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to part two of this exclusive discussion. You can watch the full video of the Theatrical Feature Film Symposium on our website at dga.org events, and be sure to download next week's episode, where our Theatrical Feature Film nominees will finish their conversation. Past episodes of The Director's Cut are available wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.